Recovery Elevator, episode 213. I was done fighting. You know, I was done trying to fight against the inevitable truth that was coming up to meet me. And I just said, I'm an alcoholic. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Mina. He's from Stockholm, Sweden. He's been sober since May 30th, 2017. He's 37 years old. And he talks about how he was determined to drink moderately. If that sounds familiar to you, it definitely sounded familiar to me. And guys, don't forget, I've got a free five-day video course. If you're needing that extra push, that extra encouragement, go to recoveryelevator.com on the front page. You can see where to sign up for this free five-day video course. And before we get any further, let's hear from my favorite resource in recovery, Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code opportunity to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. Today, I want to talk to you guys about the most controversial word that I have encountered in AA. So every AA meeting is different and there are different cultures of 12-step meetings depending on where you are in America and the world. This is one of the cool things about 12-step meetings. But this is my experience with what I have found to be a word or a concept that is curiously, perhaps purposely omitted despite the frequency it's used in the big book and other 12-step literature by its authors. Now, you don't hear this word much in 12-step meetings. And I had heard it before, but I hadn't put two and two together until a couple weeks ago I was at a meeting and I said this word followed by an accidental gap. It wasn't on purpose. I just said the word, and in my mind, I said an internal, um, I was thinking to collect my thoughts. But before I continued, I noticed there was a shift in energy in the room. It was nearly palpable. I saw people get up. One guy actually went up and got coffees. Up, yep, definitely time for a refill of coffee. People shift in their chairs. This one word gets people thinking at the conscious and unconscious level. And no, this word is not moderation. It's not psychedelics. It's not cannabis. This word doesn't represent a concept such as one needs to have a higher power or embrace some sort of spirituality to get sober um, or enter the rooms of AA. But yet this word holds the same weight as the concepts of spirituality, higher power. But these, instead of obstacles to entering AA, they're almost on the other side of the spectrum. They make it difficult uh, for someone to exit AA. Now this word which I'm probably doing a fantastic job of building it up way too much. You're probably like, Paul, come on. Let's just hear this word. 
may actually keep us in the rooms longer than the creators of AA wanted us to be. This word is recovered. Not the progressive tense, not in recovery or recovering, but the past tense recovered as in your addiction to alcohol is behind you. If you attend 12-step meetings with enough frequency, ask yourself, when was the last time you heard the ED at the end of the word recover? As in, it's no longer an issue at a meeting. Again, I somewhat stumbled upon this when I said the word recovered in the meeting, and I could, I could feel, I could see the shift in energy in the meeting. Before we cover why I think this is the most controversial word in AA, let's take a look at some examples of the word recovered in the big book and other 12-step literature. All right, this is in the big book in the doctor's opinion. It says, this man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. This is in the big book on page 17. There is a solution. It says, nearly all have recovered. This is the big book. There is a solution, page 29. Further on, clear-cut directions are given showing how we recovered. This is Big Book to the Wives, page 113. He knows that thousands of men, much like myself, have recovered. This is in the 12 by 12, page 112. And if these are facts of life, for the many alcoholics who have recovered in AA, they could become the facts of life for many more. And thank you, Ty, for helping me do the research for this episode. Ty, by the way, is an angel sent from above. She also edits the podcast, and she should probably charge me more than she does. Ty, if you're listening, I'm just planting that seed out there. Ty has been editing this podcast for over 150 episodes straight. Thank you so much, Ty. So Ty found over 20 examples of the word recovered in the big book and the 12 by 12. So why is this word so controversial? Well, it challenges some thinking patterns and identities. Somewhere, the members of AA got off track of what the authors intended. And humans are good at this. We can see how the teachings deviate when we look at basically every religion that has ever been created. So this is not specific to just alcoholics. In fact, what I have seen with the modern day sentiment of what anonymity in AA looks like is drastically different than how Bill explains how he thinks anonymity is supposed to be in his segment of how Bill sees it. So recovered, is this even a thing? A common ideology that you'll hear in meetings goes something like this. And I hear this all the time. I have a disease called alcoholism and I need to attend meetings for the rest of my life. I have a lot to say on that statement, but to keep on track, the word recovered falls somewhat in a discord with this statement. It's not in line with conventional thinking or, or, or from what I have witnessed in being part of 12-step programs. So human beings in general are good at misinterpreting what others say. That's why text messaging can go south real quick. And guys, I might be doing the same thing here. But after reading 20 examples of what Ty found in the AA literature and in the 12 by 12, I think the authors mean to say that you can recover and you can be recovered from alcoholism. Is it fully possible to be recovered from alcoholism? Again, I think that's what the authors are intending. Perhaps those who have fully recovered from alcoholism through the 12-step programs, are they even still in the rooms? Or are they out there living their lives liberated from this disease called alcoholism? Again, a reason why this is so controversial is because it challenges thinking, personalities, role, identifications with a program that are rigid in structure. This can be a blow to people's ego. I know it sounds strange, but the thought of leaving the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that you don't need meetings for the rest of your life, that doesn't sit well with everybody. It's their routine. It's the norm. 
And I fully respect that. I understand that. I just see it from a different angle. And my thoughts are, yes, we can fully recover. That many have already recovered. I know this because I've met hundreds of people who have done this. I've interviewed many of them on my podcast. I personally feel that I have fully recovered from my alcoholism. The obsession to drink has been lifted and it was lifted a long time ago. Have I reached Buddha, Tony Robbins status, level 10 Zen master? Absolutely not. There are still several things that I'm working on, but many of them take place outside the rooms of 12-step meetings. So the next time you hear the word recovered in a meeting, and perhaps say it yourself, be cognizant of the shift of energy in the room. Ask yourself these questions. Is it possible to fully recover? Did the authors get it wrong? Before we hear from Mina, let's hear from today's sponsor, Blinkist. I know we all have goals to hit, whether it's eating healthier or exercising more, and sometimes it can be hard to achieve all these while struggling with other aspects of life. There is an app I highly recommend to help you hit your goals a bit easier. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read or listen to them. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get to the main points of the books quickly without reading the entire book. With an audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish four books a day while you're on the go. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library, from self-help, business, health, to recovery books. I personally love Blinkist because right now I'm writing a book, and if I want to get the key takeaways out of the book, all I have to do is use Blinkist. I don't have to read the full book. There are some great books fully applicable to addiction on Blinkist. Through Blinkist, I currently read Eat, Move, Sleep, How Small Choices Lead to Big Changes by Tom Rath, and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And right now, for limited time, Blinkist has a special offer for just my audience. Go to Blinkist.com forward slash elevator to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com forward slash elevator to start your free seven-day trial. Blinkist.com forward slash elevator. Mina, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for asking. And Mina, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I've been sober since May 30th, 2017. Nice job. Mina, how's it feel? Feels good. I'm, I'm very grateful. Yeah, good stuff. And, and give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and most importantly, what do you like to do for fun, Mina? I'm from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm 37 years old. I'm single, have no children. I am a software engineer by profession. And for fun, I like to read. Uh, I like to visit um, museums, exhibitions, and spend time in libraries. Nice. What are you reading right now? Reading a, a Swedish novel. It's It translates to um, the, the upbringing of a stand-up comedian. Okay. All right. I like it. And listeners... The cool part about technology, which I fully believe we are leveraging technology in our favor, is that uh, Mina lives in Sweden right now, and addiction is prevalent across the face of the planet. And so the majority of my interviewees are from America. Occasionally we go to the UK, but I love it when we get uh, to other countries like Sweden. I've had a South Africa in there, you know, because it's the common consensus we hear wherever we live that alcohol is everywhere. You don't know what it's like to get sober here. And so I'm excited to hear about the intricacies of getting sober in Sweden. I think you're the second person I've interviewed from Sweden on the podcast. So I'm excited to hear more about your story, Mina. 
So let's dive into this. Give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, how much you drank. Did you ever attempt to regulate, put rules into place? When did you first realize it was a problem? And when you're telling us about your journey, try to give us dates and ages. For example, when you're 30, this happened. When you're 32, this happened, etc. All right, take it from take it away. Thanks, Paul. Again, thank you for having me on the on the podcast. I had my first real drink when I was 17 years old. I'm I'm sure that uh, I had I had a drink or two when I was a child, maybe 13, 14. The only thing I really remember is that alcohol had an amazing effect on me. I was a was kind of an uh, introverted child, and when I when I did drink as a child, I remember that it was it was power. And then the first time I actually drank and I got really drunk, I blacked out. 17 years old, it was my first, it was the first party I ever went to uh, in high school, and uh, I blacked out uh, after an unspecified amount of, of drinks. I don't know, because obviously I don't remember. What I do remember really, really clearly from that night is that when I started to approach that totally trashed state that it was a form of freedom and bliss that I had never experienced before that point. And so from about ages of 17 till the ages of about 25, I drank really hard. I kind of passed the partying stage that most people did in high school and, and university. I went straight to drinking on my own, drinking hard, drinking from Friday to Monday kind of style. Um, and uh, my habits at that time, in like the, the first eight years of drinking, I, would, I wouldn't really mix drinks. I would maybe have a beer or two, and then I would just go straight to vodka or tequila. And after about a year or two, I, start, I graduated to bottles of vodka or tequila. I wasn't a great addition to parties because people had to clean up after me, <laughs> save me <laughs> out of messy situations, unfortunately, literally, when I say messy. But and that kind of continued. And after the first three years of drinking, I I just stopped going out, like going out with people. I just I just was drinking alone, and that and that meant buying bottles of gin or vodka and sitting at home. Sometimes drinking on a bus, which I remember really well. The first time I did it, I thought it was very iconic and uh, badass of me. But now I realize it was terribly, terribly tragic um, to drink like that when I was 22 or. 23 years old. Around the midpoint during the eight years, I had a really, I had, I had two or three really humiliating experiences. Uh, I'd gone out to a bar with a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, who actually is the only person from my life who knew I had a problem. And uh, we were drinking tequila. He was drinking tequila. I was consuming it at a rate that was not healthy at all. And I left early after maybe finishing off a bottle. And uh, I walked. I'm staggering home, and I ended up passing out in uh, like a in like a grassy area by the bar. And I fell asleep, and I woke up in my own piss and shit. And uh, it was it was the beginning of the end. Although the end would take a long time, uh, but I was so embarrassed and I was so humiliated and so ashamed of myself because I had to unfortunately walk home. I. I, I didn't have enough brain function to make a call or get a cab, so I had to walk in that state. And then um, that was maybe 2003, 2004. I, a lot of these dates are going to be approximate because I don't really remember anymore. Yeah, My no, sense no of, problem. 
yeah, my sense of time is messed up. But anyway, the next three years, I tried to regulate. I started developing some of these rules like don't drink when I'm sad, don't drink alone. But I would pretty much fail at maintaining these rules. It was really hard. I had a couple of more benders, but they were more like, they weren't like days or weeks. They'd be like one night. But I would obviously drink really fast and really hard and end up, I mean, a couple of the other stories that I'm not really proud of, um, getting like uh, really abusive and violent with bar staff, ending up in a in an ambulance and then yelling at the people who saved me, yelling at doctors and waking up the next morning and the doctor saying, wow, you're really quiet and polite. Wow. And I, yeah. Yeah, I know. And I would apologize. Sure. Um, but pretty much the, the, this was, uh, so my, my real drinking career, the first part was in England where I went to, I went to school. Mm-hmm. 2007, I decided to move back to South Africa. That's where my parents were living. I kind of hit the end of my time in England and I was very depressed. I was often suicidal and like many alcoholics that I know, uh, we tend to think that a geographic switch will solve our problems. So my first real geographic switch was to go move back to South Africa. But before I went, my friends in London threw me a, a going away party. And I was very, very depressed that I was leaving. I was very, very sad. And I drank a lot that night. My friends tell me, because I blacked out that night, but my friends tell me I drank. Uh, I think it was two bottles of tequila on my own. And it was so bad that I had to be carried out of the place. I puked everywhere, including a cab. I got thrown out of a cab. I ended up at a hospital. I started yelling, and I got in an argument with my then-friend's uh, girlfriend. I got thrown out of the ward and I had to sleep in the emergency room because nobody would come near me. Uh, and I woke up the next morning. My t-shirt was ripped down the middle. I had no shoes and socks and I don't, I had no idea how I got there. That's a hell of a going away party. Yeah. And um, when I woke up, that was the first time that I knew I had a problem. Like I started to I started to like in my mind say, okay, this doesn't work anymore. You know, this is not working. Then and how old were you at that moment? Oh yeah, uh, 2007. That was 11 years ago. So I was 26. Gotcha. Okay, so about 10 more years before your sobriety date of May 30th. Wow. All right, keep going. Yeah. So the next 11 year, the next 11 years, I was pretty much uh, a textbook dry drunk. I had even more rules. I started like uh, rules like, um, you know, one beer only, three beers only, never drink spirit, like never drink spirits with people, never drink alone. If I drink alone, it had to be a celebration. I had to drink with a certain movie or certain music. But all those rules were pretty terrible. They didn't work. So like I, I started having less vendors, but when I did get drunk, Sometimes they were dangerous, like uh, driving home drunk. I mean, if it wasn't for <laughs> extreme good luck, I would have been dead by now just by by car accidents, um, like driving off of the side of a high, like a freeway or something. But I, I like I, a lot of other addictions came up during these eleven years. But the alcohol was the was the reliable friend that I went back to at the end, and. Uh, I hit bottom with another addiction in 2015, September 2015, 
And as I was going through the withdrawal through that, I went to an AA meeting, funnily enough, and I walked in. It was three people, and there was an old-timer. And this old-timer said very quietly and resolutely, he's like, alcoholics are people who can't drink like other men. And I was pissed. I was obviously crazy from withdrawals, and I was pissed, and I was just offended. And I walked out of there, and I, I decided to prove to the world then an old-timer who had no idea what he was talking about. I wanted to prove to him that he was wrong. So I went completely off liquor for about 10 months. And I was very proud of myself, and I was really smug. But uh, three months into my 10-month experiment, I was going a bit crazy, you know. Uh, I started having – so this, at this point, I was living in South Africa. And then I thought, yeah, let's move to Europe. That's going to solve my problem. I had no job at that time. I was living with my parents again. And I had just gotten into a fairly serious relationship. But um, in my very sane mind, I thought, no, it's time to move to Europe, which I did in May. And around July 2016, so now this was like the 10-month 10, 10 mark of my not drinking at all, I went to uh, like, because uh, here you can't buy, like there's only um, like a government, I don't know what you want to call, I don't know how to describe it in English, but basically here like you can't just buy liquor from anywhere. Um, there's only one place and, you know, they've got opening and closing hours and nobody else is allowed to, it's like a government, sure. only the government. Sell now, liquor. Yeah, it's, some it's, counties and even some states have that in uh, in America. Yeah, I, we, I get it. Okay, yeah. So I went to um, a supermarket and I bought some light beers. And I went home and I was going to celebrate that I had proven this, you know, crusty alcoholic wrong. Sat in front of the TV. I took one sip, literally one sip of this beer. And 18 years of drinking came flooding back. And this uh, is after 10 months of abstaining from a drink, right? Yeah, completely stone cold sober. And I immediately felt that desperation, the depression, the sense of failure. But obviously, I couldn't throw away a good beer. <laughs> so yeah. I drank. I understand beer. that thinking. I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So pretty much from um, July 2016 to about April 2017, I drank. I'd say like I drank really like seldomly. I maybe have like a beer when because I worked at a startup at that time in Stockholm. I got a job and things like in terms of my life, my life was coming together. You know, I was starting to get my shit together. But every time I drank socially, either with my family or the friend or you know at work, it would just be that chaos. I would start thinking about more, and I'm like, I can't show people that I have a problem. But I was so worried about people's knowing rather than me trying to solve the problem. You know, like I was really just focused on that. In February 2017, I went to Russia uh, on like a weekend trip. And I bought a bottle. I actually got a bottle of vodka from a friend of mine there. And then I bought another bottle of vodka for good measure at the airport. And from February to April, those two bottles of vodka sat on my... Um, sat in the living room, and I stared at them every day for about four months. Yikes. And all I wanted to do was to down them, but I was terrified. And I got stuck in this mental loop of, I want to drink them, I can't drink them because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose control, 
but I really want to drink them. And I just wasn't, I was in that loop for three, four months. Mm -hmm. And I, I finally went really crazy the end of May. And uh, my absolute bottom, that's when I knew that I was done. It was a Monday, 29th of May. I unfortunately told my boss that I was work. I told work that I was working from home. And I waited four hours until lunchtime. And I took out the bottle of vodka, it was a bottle of Finlandia vodka. And I stared at it. It actually felt like I was in some weird French film. I stared at it. And then I just downed a half of it. Wow. And the only thing I remember really from that day was when I put down the bottle, all I could hear myself saying was more. And what happened was I poured myself like a double in a tumbler and I downed them. I downed like two or three of those doubles. And when those three doubles hit me really hard, then I, I was like more. And then I started downing the bottle. Yeah, I, I know that more voice yeah. <laughs> very well. I know a lot of listeners are like, oh, yeah, yeah, the more voice, our addiction lying to us and our own voice. Yeah, we're very familiar with that voice. All right, keep going. And then something just struck me. I, I, I sort of stepped back from the table. I was trashed because I had not had that much vodka in years, maybe. And I have a I have a hate-hate relationship with vodka. It's the thing that makes it, you know, I just light up when I drink vodka. Um, and I was trashed. And, and then I passed out. And I woke up four hours later. I was shaking. And I had the shakes for about two weeks. Wow. And I was so confused. And I was frazzled. And I was a mess. I was a wreck. I couldn't stay at home because there was still another bottle of vodka waiting for me. I went out to downtown Stockholm. I walked around like a, a mentally unstable person for about two hours. And I actually went on to a, a website called intherooms.com. Mm -hmm. It's a, a platform for 12-step fellowships. Yeah, great, great site. Yeah, and I walked, I walked into a room, into a meeting that I had been going to, and I, I admitted. That's where I first admitted I was an alcoholic. Wow. And then I, um, I somehow got myself home. I hid away from my sister and brother-in-law who were living with me at the time. And the next day I went to work. Um, don't know how I got through that because I was shaking the whole day and I am sure to this day that everybody knew that something was up, but I just stood there. Like, I don't know. Have you ever seen the movie leaving Las Vegas? I have a tough one to I, watch. Right. Do you remember the scene where Nicolas Cage is in the bank trying to cash the check and he's holding on, like he's hugging himself very clearly. So, yes. That's how I was during a stand up meeting at work. And you had these shakes for two weeks about. Two weeks. Wow. Yeah. At the end of that day, I wanted to drink. So I started walking, um, and I looked up a 12-step meeting, and I found one that wasn't so far away. I started walking because I didn't trust myself to go on a train or an underground. I was, re I was really crazy at this point. I walked the whole way. I passed whole bunch of bars and I was looking at them I was you know um, salivating over beers but I was so scared that I was I kept on walking I got to the meeting early so I had to go to a coffee shop and drink coffee <laughs> to stay you know somewhat sane before the meeting and then I walked into the wrong meeting uh, I went to a fellowship that I, I didn't plan on going to but I stayed because I was terrified of leaving obviously <laughs> and I had never listened to anybody before in my life you know I'm a pretty 
I'm not a stubborn person, but uh, I listened to about 20 shares before it was my turn to share, and I refused to say the word alcoholic. I didn't want to say anything, but by the time it was my turn, I was done fighting. You know, I was done trying to fight against the inevitable truth that was coming up to meet me, and I just said, I'm an alcoholic, and I have been sober since that day. How did that feel? You said you're done fighting. How did it feel when you just said, I'm an alcoholic? Because I said it the night, the day before on the, on the, you know, in the, on the ITR meeting, mm-hmm. the word itself wasn't so difficult because I already said it once. But I think when I said it in front of a group of people who then clapped, which is really weird, obviously, for somebody who's shaking. <laughs> I bet. It was an immense amount of relief. I actually cried. I started crying. Yes. Probably right after. I couldn't stop crying. And it wasn't it wasn't sadness, it was relief. It was like I, I don't know if you're allowed to swear on the show, but wow, somebody fucking understands finally. Yeah, you're good. You're good. It's like you, the body and I've seen this at, at recovery elevator retreats. When people get up there and they share their story, the body is like finally we just got this off our chest. The energy in our body is no longer there. And most of the times, it's tears of gratitude, tears of joy. Um, there are yeah. at times tears of, okay, like things didn't go as planned. But most of the time, like you said, it's relieving. It feels so good for it to get out. And, 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 and uh, Mina, there's a, lot, there's a lot I want to cover before I get to your, the recovery component of this and how you did it. I'm excited to hear more about that. But the first thing is, or I want to just cover the first drink with, with the audience right now. And you said it was bliss. It was a form of freedom. And, and listeners, I'm writing a book right now, and it's ironic that you said this because just this morning, I covered this topic in the book. I've heard from hundreds of, of people in recovery that the very first drink, and including for myself, that it was blissful. It was like the, oh my God, this is what's been missing my entire life moment. I've also asked the same question to probably over 100 normal drinkers, and their response is, uh, I don't get what the big deal is. This tastes like shit. Um, yeah, I think I'll wait another two years before I drink again. They're two completely different responses. And to the whole enhanced dopamine receptors, there are people out there that do have a different amount of receptors with, uh, with their dopamine um, system. Dopamine is a reward system. It's the learning chemical, learning molecule. And I find it fascinating. Um, addiction is confusing, but this is one component which leads to addiction. And in evolutionary terms, our enhanced reward systems served a purpose. We were the ones that would go a little bit further to find fire, to find a mate, to, to procreate, etc. Um, and, and, and nowadays with the 24-7 stimuli we face, it can kind of backfire. But So I just want to cover that. And, and also, Mina, you did a fantastic job of describing the progression. Again, you are you're, you're interview one, you're interviewee 212. And oh. the progression is strikingly similar where eventually it reaches a point where we end up drinking alone and you did a fantastic job of, of saying that and the rules you put in place. I'm not going to drink when I'm sad. I'm not going to drink at this time and that time. So I loved your progression and, and thanks for, thanks for sharing that with us. And, um, you and me got the same thing with, with the 10 months. I, I had 10 months of sobriety. So I had two and a half years relapsed and then I had 10 months of sobriety. And it sounds like you went off the rails on the first drink on the, like the very first drink. You're like, holy shit, it's on for me. I had a, I had a drink after 10 months and a couple hours later I was, I was Googling if I could drink hydrogen peroxide or rubbing alcohol. And the same thing hit me. I was like, holy shit, that, 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 that ramped up fast. 
And, and then, like, you're also talking about the moment with the vodka on the fridge. I mean, it seems like what you do when you go to Russia is just buy bottles of vodka. So I was like, why do you do that? But then I understand why. And then you're just staring at that. And then willpower only goes so far. And eventually, you just snapped. And it was almost like the conscious moment was like, okay, here we go. You're going to do it. Not the unconscious part of your brain, but the conscious part. And this happens occasionally was like, all right, dude, if you want to do this, here we go. More, 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 more. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Unconscious part of the brain. You woke up, you're shaking for two weeks and, and I'm, I'm not a medical professional at all, but one night of drinking shouldn't lead to two weeks of detox symptoms. What I think that was, there was such a shock to your central nervous system, your entire system that you knew the old Mina was dead and your body was like, Oh my God, I can't, this is too much change. You were shaking for two weeks. I don't know. What's your take on that? I have to be blunt with you. I don't even remember my first two weeks. I remember like calling my sponsor in the 12 step fellowship mm -hmm. a couple of times. I had to take a couple of days, like, uh, they call them here like mental health days where you can, you know, if you're not feeling so well, like mentally and stuff, you're, you're, you can take it like a sick day. And I had to do things that I'd never done before, like take care of myself and drink water and walk out in the forest, you know? And I, and I didn't know because for me, my only real existence or my real, my only real reason for living was to destroy myself. So now I had to not drink and, and like go to meetings and call people and, and share and, and meditate. And I was, so the first two weeks are almost like, they're almost like, they're like, they're a blur like my drinking years are because it was so much happening. Like emotionally, I was up and down, I was crying and then I'd get angry. You know, what I do kind of remember is I remember some of the, some of the conversations I had, you know, uh, people just telling me just, just hang in there, you know, you're going to get through it. And I, and I raged a couple of times, both privately at home. And in meetings, I'd be like, why the fuck did I do this? You know, and I, I think my only real clear memory was, I think it was two weeks in, or maybe it was just after I was, so it's a funny story and it's also deeply crazy. So I was walking, I went to go get lunch. I was at work and on the way back, I wanted to get a snack, right? Um, because that's what I do. So I convinced myself the only place to buy a snack was at the place that sells alcohol. So in the, in the, in, you know, I walk in there looking for like potato chips or Doritos or something. And all I see is wine and vodka and tequila. And, um, I went up to the vodka section and I stared at it as if it was like a girlfriend that broke up with me and I stared and then I walked out and then I called my sponsor and he's like, that was a dumb idea. <laughs> that was a deeply, deeply dumb idea. But, you know, after those two weeks, I started to remember things. I started to I started to kind of, you know, recover in a way from because those first two weeks were they were hell on earth. They so, were really hellish. And so what kept you going during those first two weeks? Why did you keep on going? Because what you'd explained sounds miserable. I know a lot of people went through that. I went through that. But what kept you going? I was going to die if I drank again. Oh, and that's okay. yeah, that's what I tell people all around me. Uh, if I ever drink again, I'm not going to go and have like a, a respectable, you know, a German uh, beer at a bar. I'm going to go buy six bottles of vodka and drink them at, at home. That's how I'm going to go out. And um, 
to be even more morose, my end will either be my last relapse or my like my my like a, my first and last relapse, or it's going to be suicide. That's just the reality of my life. Yeah, I mean, there's a saying in, in the twelve step rooms is, "I got another drink in me, but I don't know if I have another sobriety in me." And I don't want to be morose either. I like that word. I don't, I don't want to be speculative or whatnot. But I, I, I kind of feel you on that one. I feel if I go out again, I, I man, yeah, suicide is. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I'll make it back. And I'm, I'm just this is being a pragmatic, right? I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence behind me to suggest that. So I know me and you both, we're gonna do everything in our power to maintain this current path. And so. In the first 30 days, 60 days, what were the lessons that you learned? Because it sounds like you had to change so much. <laughs> hey, I'm going to drink water now. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, first 30, first 30 days, I, learned, I had to learn how to be honest about everything, which was painful because I was, I was incredibly good. And sometimes, unfortunately, I'm still good at it. You know, I was good at compartmentalizing my life. I tell this one thing to this person and that thing to that person and then this shade to this person. You know, I had to go I had to sometimes call a friend or my sponsor and tell him, you know, it's not the big things that that bother us in sobriety. It's the small, stupid shit, you know, the, the petty, petty shit like this woman on the train looked at me funny and now I'm I think I'm ugly, you know, like I would have never told anybody that three years ago, but now I have to because if I don't, it sits there and it you know it builds like a little nest in my head until I go crazy, you know. So first month I had to learn that. Sixty days in, I had to trust somebody else, and that was also incredibly hard to do because before I started sobriety, I trusted no one, unfortunately, including myself, you know. Uh, even though I relied on myself for everything, but I also knew deep down that I, I was going to be the end of myself. So I had to sometimes, you know, and like in the 12 step, you have to trust other people. And sometimes they tell you to do stuff that makes no fucking sense. Sure. But you're like, I either trust them and live or trust myself and die. It's a great way to say it. I was like, okay, well, let me, let me do it differently this time. And I had to call. I had to call people, and I had to be honest. I had to ask for help from my boss when I was doing doing so well, and I was sort of, you know, sinking. I had to tell him the truth. You know, uh, I had to do these things that, for any normal person, even a person who might have some kind of issue or a mental health disorder or any kind of, you know, life issue, you know, most people are like, yeah, of course, you have to talk to people, you have to ask for help. But for me, as a hopeless alcoholic. It's almost impossible. Well, it, it was almost impossible. I mean, what was the reaction of your boss when you told him? I mean, I, my, my last employer, they were amazing. So my boss looked at me. He's like, thank you so much for, for trusting me enough to tell me. I am, I am here for you 100%. Whatever you need, I'm here for you. And I, I almost started crying at work because I'd never, I was never met with that amount of grace and poise in, in like – compassion before you know especially at a workplace yeah Um, people think it's going to be instant dismissal from their job if anybody finds out not 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 like a boss or an employer just anybody in the cubicle next to them but i I gotta think on this i don't think i've ever heard a story where when the cat's out of the bag that it goes south in fact it's almost always positive just like you mentioned 
and, and, and talk to me about how important it is to bring other people on in, in your recovery. So like outside of my 12-step fellowship, um, around October, November um, 2017, I was doing my amends and I started telling my friends, like not everybody, uh, but I started telling my closest friends and it was a shock, it was a shock for them because I was so good at lying that out of maybe out of my whole group of close friends, only one guy knew, and that was the guy who I'd, I was drinking tequila with that night in England. And I actually met him in like October, November, that uh, uh, whatever. Whenever I met him, he told me, yeah, I knew. Of course, man. <laughs> of course he had a problem, you know. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but else, everybody else, nobody knew. And But I mean, everybody that I told who was a close friend, it changed our friendship. It brought us closer together. They started opening up about their issues. And they started, like, not necessarily asking me for advice because I have nothing to give them. But I was able to show up for them and listen. Sometimes they just call me and we talk for an hour and a half and I just listen, you know. Sometimes I'd use 12-step, like, talk or, you know, slogans. But suddenly I was becoming of use to somebody else, which for me was a major paradigm shift. You know, major, major paradigm shift. I mean, I was so good with lying about my drinking to other people that I was even lying to myself. And it took a while for me to realize that I was lying to myself as well. I mean, as we've heard, drinking is but a symptom. Talk to me about the why. Why do you think you drank? Great question. I'd say several reasons. First reason, I drank just to be able to feel normal. I was an awkward kid. I was even more awkward in school. And when I finally started drinking in college, I could talk to women and I could be the life of the party and I could have friends and people thought I was funny and people wanted to hang out with me. So in that way, drinking was, you know, it was a superpower. But like in my private life, drinking was the, it was the elixir for everything that went wrong. You know, when I was sad, I drank. When I was rageful, raging at somebody or something, I drank. When I was depressed, I drank. Sometimes when I was bored or when I was just like, you know, that idleness that sometimes hits, hits us, I would sometimes go to a bar out of almost like, you know, um, it would be like a habit. Like I wouldn't even be aware that I'm going to the bar. I would just go to the bar, sit down, have a pint because I lived in England at the time. And then finally... I drank because I also wanted to die. I mean, the times when I drank and I blacked out, whether when I was alone in that that grassy area or when I was with my friends, that wasn't just like alcoholic drinking, I want to party, I want to drink fast. That was like, I want to die and I want to die painfully, you know? I mean, when I went to the hospital in 2007, I was told much later because it obviously it, 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 it messed up a lot of friendships, you know, permanently. Uh, some people finally told me, like, they had to pump my stomach, and some of the people there were like, how the fuck did you survive this? Wow. That's a lot of tequila in somebody's body, you know? So, I mean, this is not easy to say or even admit, but yeah, I drank to die. And that's why today, for me, drinking is, a relapse is, is not just a relapse, it's it's very serious to me, because of the progressive, because of the progressive nature of the disease, you know? That was an amazing answer to that question. Mina, thank you. I loved it. 
And, and one question before we hit the rapid fire round, is there anything you would have done differently when getting sober? Oh, great question. I love this question. I would have, I, sh- I would have wanted to listen to my sponsor about dating. <laughs> uh. I, <laughs> I mean, thankfully I didn't relapse in any of my addictions because of it, but it caused me a great deal of grief in my first year and a half of, of, uh, of sobriety. Um, it, it was like, um, it was its own mental obsession. It was its own like preoccupation and it is a major distraction, you know? And the thing that was hard for me to realize was that I suck at relationships. Like I'm absolutely terrible at them, but I will get good at them. I'll get better at them as I get more sober and as I learn how to live sober, you know? So that would be the thing that I would, if anything out of this story today for other people listening is when somebody advises you to not date in your first year, listen to them. They, they, and I mean, I, I, I cause myself a lot of grief, you know, like a lot of, because you know, in, in like for a normal person, a rejection on Tinder is a rejection, you know, you move on with your life. But a rejection on Tinder for a rather new, newly sober alcoholic, it's like the apocalypse, you know? Yeah, that's it's, a great way to say it. It's, it's, you know, you feel everything is crashing and nobody's ever going to love you. And nobody's ever going to marry you. And then obviously because of my, you know, great uh, skill at being obsessive, I don't just get rejected once and then, you know, maybe stop. I start I, I like try again three or four times in a row and I get rejected again and then it makes me feel even worse you know so yeah, and, it, and it's also trying to fill the internal void with external validation which never works um, I, I love how you said that and, and and Mina we have reached the rapid fire round if you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds that would be great and you you already you already answered the first two. Let's just go right to number three. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward? You got you got two years coming up on May thirtieth. How are you going to get there? More spirituality, more service, and uh, working on my myself uh, in terms of my own projects, like the things that I never did because I was drunk. What are some of those projects? I've got a novel that has been sitting inside of me for a long time. Okay. Uh, and I've got a actually I've got a podcast that I'm also working on. Ah, cool. Yeah, well, yeah. we'll send me uh, send me links or both of those when when you get those going. Absolutely. And when what are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Meditation is a big one for me now, and uh, yeah, the practice of meditation. And what does your meditation practice look like? Right now, it's uh, 10, 15 minutes in the morning. And I try to do 10 to 15 minutes in the evening, but I'm not so good with it. But the morning meditation for me is it's almost like it can set the tone for the rest of my day. And I, I mean, I'm not a Buddhist, but I now fully believe and vouch for the power of meditation that if one practices it over a, a longer period of time, it does change you inside out. And I remember when somebody said that to me in the beginning, I was like, that's free hugging bullshit. I hate that, but it's actually true. Yeah. Brain scan shows with people who are experiencing meditation that there's the, the neural circuitry is different. Yeah. You, yep. you can actually change your brain through meditation alone. And I've heard it so many times and, and meditation has been a big part of my recovery. 
And I've heard it so many times that it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the day. Uh, yeah. yeah. And what other resources do you use? Another one is music. I've, I'm trying to listen to as much music as I can and also listen to new, new kinds of music and, and also to use music as almost like, um, almost like medicine, you know, like I now, sometimes I can't write if I don't listen to a certain type of music because I feel it connects me to my emotions. Um, which takes me on to my third thing, which is to really work on deeper issues. It will be, it's a major resource for me because we, I started drinking not just because I'm an alcoholic, but because there's other stuff going on. And it's important for me to get to the bottom of those deeper things so I can, you know, hopefully one day at a time, never pick up the vodka bottle again. Mina, your awareness and insight is incredible. It's, it's neat to listen to. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Do you want to be right or do you want to be at peace? Mm, I like it. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? Yeah. Choose yourself today. Um, choose your own, choose your life. Uh, it, it, it may not seem apparent, but that's what sobriety is, is choosing yourself. So I hope you do it. And before we depart, Mina, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic if line. You might be an alcoholic if you wake up in your own piss and shit after a hard night drinking. Yeah, that, that, yeah that's a good one. That works. <laughs> that works, man. Mina, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. No, thank you for, um, for giving me the opportunity. It's amazing. Thank yeah, you. Of course. Thank you, Mina. Guys, episode 214 is going to be a good one. I'm going to interview a gal named Dr. Sue Mortar, who is currently blending spirituality with quantum physics. She's going to do a great job of explaining how the two of them are speaking the same language. I highly encourage you to check out Dr. Sue Mortar on YouTube. Become a little bit familiar with her and her teachings before I interview her next week. I attended one of her retreats in Evergreen, Colorado a few weeks ago. Although a retreat is not specific to addiction, oh my gosh, it's completely applicable to addiction. So I am excited for the next upcoming podcast episode. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys. <laughs>